Welcome to The Baseline, the podcast for coaches, parents, and athletes interested in learning more about softball player development. Here our goal is simple, change and grow the game of softball. All right, so we've been talking about uh, weighted balls, especially, um, and implementing them in our training. Um, I think when we're talking about drills or protocols or different programs, we always sort of ask ourselves three questions. Um, One is, what's your purpose or intent behind incorporating that drill or concept? So what are you trying to accomplish? You can think of things like, are you trying to fix a mechanic? Are you trying to increase velocity or you try to increase bat speed sort of making sure you know the intent of why you're doing that um and then once you've accomplished that and you put it in place obviously you want to measure if it works um so like did it accomplish the task you were trying to work on um and then at what cost so if it did work was there any sort of cost or risk or you know something that happened as a result of that so this could be increasing risk of injury this could be uh, it causes a different mechanical issue. So sometimes when we do drills and we're trying to fix one mechanical issue, then we implement it and then we see something else come about. Um, so those are kind of the three questions that we ask ourselves when we're implementing them. So, you know, for softball and weighted balls and pitching, there's not a lot of research um, specifically for underhand throwing. So we've been sort of looking into the overhand throwing, a new, a couple new um, research came out a couple new um, articles came out this week. So we've just been looking at how we incorporate weighted balls. And I think, Ashley, maybe you can speak on this a little bit, but you know, I think sometimes too, we conflate things. So there's, there's a lot of different ways that you can use weighted ball. There's plyos, um, which for those that probably everyone knows what these are, but they're, they're more of the squishy material. It doesn't feel like a ball. Um, It's, you know, uh, the weight inside of it sort of moves around. So it causes um, some different of where the mass is. Um, there's regular weighted balls. So that for us, that would be a softball 12 inch ball um, with seams that's just weighted differently than the weight of a softball. And then there's also different intensities. So when you're using those different balls, you could be throwing them in a drill at lower intensity, you could be throwing them, you know, for max velocity. So there, there's a lot of different ways that you can use them. So it's important to understand sort of those different ways when we're talking about weighted balls. So Ashley, maybe talk a little bit about how we currently are using weighted balls um, for pitching. And then, you know, some of our discussions we've been having lately about thoughts on not maybe not changing, but just making sure that those are, are working or maybe even incorporating a little bit more work into our sessions. Yeah, sure. Um, right now what we do is our introduction of weighted overload or underload concepts is directly related to our level system. So our level system is um, where we put an athlete after they go through our threshold assessment. So um, we have athletes in level one, which we've determined are not stable. Um, They're unstable in low velocity exercises. And so we do not do any overload underload concepts with them um, for, um, for obvious reasons. So if, if, if the, if they're unstable, then we can expect, obviously if the, the, the lumbopelvic region is unstable then the shoulder is unstable. And so then we're certainly not going to change 
uh, the mass of what they're throwing. Our level two athletes, we've deemed to be stable in those low velocity exercises, um, but they have trouble with dissociation. So uh, they're not able to segment the body. So then at that phase, we start to introduce at low velocity um, in, in low velocity conditions. So really about 50% distance intensity. Then we start to introduce overload concepts. So they'll throw weighted plyos. Um, and really that's for proprioception to get them to start to understand um, a feel for the body, a feel for um, timing. We know that they're not really segmenting well at this point because they can't dissociate. And so really for them, it's about more of a, a timing and understanding of where their arm is in relation to body, where their body is in space. Um, this is a point where I'd feel like it's because they're able to use a little bit of, of uh, plyos, overload concept with plyos, then um, it's when an athlete gets into this level that I allow them to start to develop other pitches. Um, and the way we do that is by then at also at 50% distance intensity, go from weighted plyos or variability in plyos. We don't just always use, we kind of mix in and out of regular weight and overload. Um, and then do the same with, with weighted softballs. And they do that to really get them to understand, you know, that, that creating some variation of hand position at the ball also at low velocity. So um, that's where we sit with overload. Um, it's not until an athlete then goes to level three, which we then say they can not only destabilize, but now they can dissociate when exercises are at lower velocity. And so same concept as level two, we keep them at about 50% distance intensity. And now we would do what we did for overload. And we can also pair that with underload concepts as well, um, plyos and, and balls. And so sort of the next question I think that we have, we have, a, you know, youth athletes. So um, we've yet to have any athletes in level four, and these are athletes, our highest level. And that's our, our, the level where we feel like an athlete passes our assessment. So essentially they can stabilize, they can dissociate under high velocity conditions. I mean, that's pitching. So if they can move well, they can do all these things at this point, really, we should be switching our focus using overload underload principles or, you know, weighted balls from a proprioception standpoint, from a help them feel uh, uh, timing, help them feel segmentation. And we should really bump it up into trying to maximize velocity. I mean, we know these kids can throw safely at that point. So um, obviously, first and foremost is making sure we have athletes at that level before we introduce those protocols. But then once they are there, um, then what do those protocols look like and, and really what's safe? So I think um, that's really the questions we've been asking a lot. There's a lot of, Laura can chime in, but a lot of inconsistency in the literature. Um, um, but, and, but it seems as if you know, the direction that we're starting to move in is, exploring more of the underload at full velocity um, in order to increase velo. So I'll let Laura take over. That's a little bit of background on our thought process and how we've been using overload underload principles and pitching up until now. Yeah, I think it's been, um, it's been clear, I think in the literature, you know, based on what I've reviewed so far that, you know, there are advantages to both. There's advantages to underload, there's advantages to overload, both have an effect both immediate and long-term, depending on the, the training length of these studies, both have an effect on velocity. I think the, the question, though, is really, you know, what is what is the risk? You know, we only have a handful of really true long-term studies that are more than, you know, six weeks at a time, and, and really very few. I think one at the most, the Reinhold study from 2018, that really looks at following those pitchers you know, into their season and seeing what the, you know, what their 
their injury rate was, what, what problems they came up with. And in his study, particularly two of them actually had to bow out during the training process. So I think that there's a, a very clear need to obviously study these pitchers prospectively to have an idea of, you know, what we're looking for from an injury risk standpoint while undergoing this training. I think, you know, I think we can conclude that it doesn't have an effect on velocity, but again, it, you know, at what cost, at what risk. Um, and so as, as I kind of reviewed the literature, I, I think, I think we, we should talk more about exploring underload. Um, you know, I, I sort of jotted down as Ashley was talking kind of the minimum, minimum levels that I think that depending on the goal that we're looking at, whether it is an immediate effect on ball velocity, a long-term effect on ball velocity, what are the minimum levels we think an athlete has to be before that's appropriate? And then then the two blanks I have right now uh, are are on the the underload concepts. Um, You know, the underload concept really focuses on you've got less mass to move because obviously what's in the hand is lighter. And so theoretically the, you know, the arm can segment more quickly, the body can move more quickly, but if that comes at a compromise of the rest of, of their mechanics, then that is probably not ideal, especially in our younger pitchers who are still learning, you know, body stability and they're still kind of up and coming from you know, their strength and conditioning journey. So I think those are two big questions right now. And I think things that we have to explore are, are what is the role of underload? Is it appropriate for a younger pitcher to have some underload? You know, we previously said level three at least. But there might be some application where if we're talking about, you know, developing the whip of the arm through the motion to ball release, maybe underload has an application. Um, but again, I think long term, especially when you're talking about long term building of velocity and using any combination of overload and underload, you know, the risks of that have to be weighed. And, and all the literature we have right now is all baseball. And I think a major difference for us is you know, the ball is farther away from that rotation point at the shoulder. And so we have to think about, does that change the effect of underload and underload of overload and underload? Does it change the purpose of it? And the fact that our, our mechanics are a little bit different and the effect of gravity between, you know, throwing overhand and throwing underhand. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, because I think it goes back to when we're talking, what's the intent of why we're doing this. So I think almost all of the the conversations around weighted ball and baseball always go back to increasing velocity. Um, and so when we're talking increasing velocity and we're talking either a younger pitcher or pitcher that struggles moving, you know, struggles with sort of like quality movements, um, which is w- what would put you in level one or level two, then is the weighted ball program, what we need to do to increase velocity when we know there could be some risk to either mechanics or injury for that, or do we get a bigger bang for our buck, just making them better movers, um, which is probably more likely at that stage of it. So, you know, then we're talking when Ashley talks about using overload plyos, we're talking more about their intent being about proprioception, feeling their arm in space, giving them more tactile feedback to make mechanical changes a little bit lower intensity. And then when we're talking about, okay, now we have a really good mover. We have a level four mover who does everything well, who's training for power, who's doing things like BBT and and a weight room. And we still want to increase velocity. Then we have to sort of step up our game, I think. And now we're getting into how weighted balls are traditionally talked about, which is throwing a real softball at different weights at high intensity to try to create some variability in arm speed or, you know, the, the types of, effects that that would have to then increase velocity. So 
I think it's kind of it's it's different levels and conversations of what the intent is, and I think that's why it's important that the conversation around the use of weighted balls doesn't get all jumbled into one because it's not one use of them. Uh, the way we use plyos is not just to gain velocity, um, and so I think that's really important um, discussion. And I think what you were getting at the end, Laura, is just a really interesting conversation, which we we have to a little bit guess right now, which is, is there something different between when your arm is out in space over hands? And is there something different when you're coming close to your body under hands, the different effects of gravity and what that looks like? Um, does it have the same, does it accomplish the same in velocity gains? I think that would be one. And like, <clears throat> is it safer? Is it riskier? You know, these are things we can make hypotheses on them and we are, um, but that we'll have to continue to measure over time uh, to see the underhand effects. I was so going to chime are, in, Laura, at the end of your, yeah. was that the same concept? You kind of alluded a little bit to differences between the research in baseball and its application of softball. Gravity is being one as far as arm position in relation to body, um, as Chris had just said. But can you maybe talk a little bit more about like what that looks like, like um, way back in baseball versus way back in softball, like what we're talking here, when we're well, not yeah. just overhand versus underhand, but basically like what it is we're trying to accomplish oftentimes in baseball research and like why they get a gain in velocity potentially and then why that might look different in softball. Yeah, so it, the concept of layback in baseball as we you know sort of talk about it is maximum external rotation, right? How do you get into that position in order to get a full range of motion, to be able to go through internal rotation, to be able to deliver the ball in the most powerful way possible. And really softball is no different. We, you know, our, our max external rotation just happens to be though when the arm is behind us and not obviously up above the shoulder. And so that position alone of where we're really trying to get a stretch and we're really trying to use, you know, any sort of weighted implement for developing stretch or feel of stretch just inherently changes because the arm position is different. You know, I, I think, I think there's something to be said for, you know, some of the, the, quintessential research we have about distraction forces you know and if we can get into that stretch and we can use weighted implements for that stretch is that worth it if as they come down through ball release that the additional mass creates more distraction force at the shoulder um you know the the baseball literature really talks about how the the overload concepts that when you add mass because there isn't an added mass the arm actually slows down and so we've seen sort of this mix of like you add mass and the joint forces actually go down, which is interesting because the arm is moving slower. But with the effect of gravity, the fact that between layback and ball release, you pretty much have a pendulum. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's a, I don't know if that's the same. My instinct says that it's not. The shoulder's in a completely different position, you know, where the ball is in relationship to uh, the point that it's rotating is different. And I think that there are some, potential points of caution specifically with overload because we don't want to increase those distraction forces. We know through previous research that in softball pitchers, that's something to be inherently avoided because of the stretch that puts on a shoulder. Yeah. Can you talk to, um, so a new article came out um, and you'll have to correct me on the author, but about underload training and its effect on velocity. And again, we're talking baseball here. Um, and I think it's important to talk a little bit about some of the limitations of the research that we've been reading. So not just the fact that it's baseball, which is a limitation, um, but also, you know, some of the limitations. So one of the first things I noticed about the research that just came out about underload was that one, they didn't have a control group. Um, and so obviously that limits it a little bit. 
Um, and then also the, the protocols that the kids were doing, um, the, the throwing program had some med ball work. It had long toss. So it had some other different ways that we might also say help increase velocity. Um, and without the control group, it's, it's hard to look at that. Um, and so I think maybe Laura just talking, you know, some of the limitations of the research that we're seeing right now and, and guidance for us, if we were ever going to put together some research or, or guidance for others of ways that would help clear, I mean, besides that it should be softball pitching, that would be a big help, but um, some of the ways that would help clarify this research. Yeah, the, the research study was, um, the lead author was Brandon Erickson from the Rothman Institute. Uh, the title, Training with Lighter uh, Baseball, Training with Lighter Baseballs Increases Velocity Without Increasing the Injury Risk. Um, and, and this is a pretty novel study in the way they, they really executed it. Um, but obviously in the difference, you know, as you said, of not being on softball pitching, I think we have to be cautious when there is no control group. Um, you know, we're talking about true experimental research. If you really want to be able to attribute all of the changes in the intervention that you applied, so in this case was the underload baseballs, then you have to control as much as possible outside variables, right? So the kinds of training that they were doing and, and some of the differences between the groups or between the athletes, but the, the presence of a control group is really important. If you don't have a control group, you know, making any assumptions about whether your intervention actually did what you said it did, it's kind of tough. And, I, and they do acknowledge this. And I think the fact that, you know, they label this as a, a level of evidence of four, which means that it's it's really one step above kind of expert opinion, a, a review, an editorial. You know, they labeled as a case series. I think that it's it's novel in terms of its design, but I think we should be cautious about the the lack of a control group. Um, and you know, this is a 15-week pitching program, which is one of the longer programs that we've seen in the literature. Um, and I also think in terms of, you know, kind of controlling for the maturation effect, you know, you had pitchers between the ages of 10 and 17 years old. So it's very logical that velocity could have gone up in a subset of these pitchers just from natural maturity, right, or the effects of all the other training that they were doing. So I think if, you know, in terms of replicating, I think there's important things to control for. And part of that would have to be the, the maturation of the athletes, which is really challenging to do. It's always a limitation in human subjects research. Um, but I think the length of time for the protocol was, you know, definitely longer than we've had before and something to be considered in terms of replication. But I, I think a control group for sure is necessary. And so any, you know, any type of research like this moving forward, that would be ideal is having that control group and really having a nice range of ages. I think there's a couple of take home messages when we talk about this topic. And one is um, for, for our softball athletes, for our fellow training facilities, universities that are obviously using weighted, weighted um, softballs, plyos. Um, it is important to make sure that it matches an athlete's movement capacity. And, and it shouldn't be a guess. It shouldn't just be like, well, she's in college. So at this stage, that athlete then should be able to do this. And, um, you know, we've seen firsthand where that is not always the case um, and, and often not the case. So there should be a measurable way to really be able to um, under, fully understand an athlete's movement capacity and then to deem whether or not it's appropriate for them to use overload or underload, even with in, in uh, low velocity conditions like we talked about. Actually, I'm going to 
I'm going to jump in really quick too. And, and along with, so we talk a lot about our levels and movement capacity, but we have cases too, where um, an athlete might be at the, at the level, the quote movement capacity on sort of through her movements where she could do overload or underload, but mechanically we're not comfortable with that yet until she makes some mechanical changes. So maybe speak to that just a little bit of like, there's individualization, understanding where that athlete is, but then there's even more individualization and understanding that athlete's mechanics uh, before you sort of put something yeah, different so in, in addition, Yeah, so in addition to the, her movement capability in exercises that don't resemble pitching, that should match what we're doing with overload underload. And in addition to that, then her ability to then translate that movement capacity into the pitching motion. So to have an effective kinetic chain in the pitching motion is also critical. So yeah, we've had athletes where they've hit level two, level three, but their pitching motion for a variety of reasons, whether it's structural, whether it's ingrained patterns, because they're already just older, um, that in their actual pitching motion, you know, they, they sort of get stuck in this position where they're quote unquote open, as we would call it, um, where hips are rotated away from the target about, you know, approximately in 79 to 90 degrees away from their target. And so then there's just sheer force coming through the shoulder in order to deliver the pitch. This is, would never be an athlete where we would give underload or overload concepts to, even if her level within strength and conditioning says we should. So that's what you're referring to Krista, as far as, uh, it's not only just a direct link between strength and conditioning and whether or not they can um, take on those protocols we developed, but then it has to match in their pitching motion. Yeah, for sure. So you were saying takeaways. The first one was knowing movement capacity. Um, and then I interrupted you. So sorry, but you can. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's yeah, okay. The first one is, is that concept right there. And the second one is, um, I got my son here jumping in the call here. Um, and the second one is that it's important not to just take what we learn from baseball and apply it directly. So like, let's just say, I mean, we know that there's amazing research coming out of driveline all the time and other institutions. And so it's important. Let's say we have a level four athlete. She's a collegiate athlete. Um, it, it's not always appropriate because of the nature of you know the differences in baseball pitching versus softball pitching to just take the exact protocols and say, okay, we're just going to alter weight. Um, or percentages, and then take that exact protocol that they're doing with their minor leaguers or some of their older athletes and just apply it. Um, and so there's a lot more, you know, kind of for the reasons we talked about in this discussion, there's a lot more that goes into it because of the just of where the positions our bodies are in versus theirs. So um, the length of time we actually play, what we are, you know, the risk reward relationship is different in minor leaguers in major leaguers versus it is for our youth athletes. And let's face it, our college athletes are youth athletes. So um, all of these things I think are just really important. And I and, um, think these are just things that are, it's like a, an example of the types of things that are in our brain as we try to take on our own protocols, the types of uh, the level of thoughtfulness that we hope to have um, as we kind of move further and like evolving our own, our own training programs. And then to be clear, I don't think this is a male female. I don't think this is a male female thing. I think if you, you know, if you look at the literature and you look at like female handball players who also throw overhand, right? Cause that's a challenge too, is finding a female counterpart to a baseball pitcher, right? That's challenging in any sense of quantity to be able to make any application. But if you, if you look at the literature on, on female handball players, they show velocity gains as well in terms of using overload and underload. So I don't think this is a, you know, I don't think this is a, a, you know, biological sex issue. I think that this is a, 
just simple body position, right? And the biomechanics of that and, and whether the pitching motions can be equivalent in these, in this conversation. Totally. Um, so that is where we are right now. So stay tuned for where our protocols go from here as we look at this research and hopefully sort of uh, get some of our own out soon. Um, but yeah, we're excited to make people throw harder um, safely and correctly. So 